show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go Hello and welcome to the virtual pub, thoughts and drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Leary. What are we serving today? I can see you shaking something vigorously. Oh, sorry, I didn't realise the camera was on. (laughs) (laughs) And I got whipped cream. (laughs) I wish you'd you'd squirted that into a drink. (laughs) Oh, I should have done it straight in my mouth. I'll do that. Oh, oh God. <laughs> I, I just saw you attempt a creamy explosion in your mouth and it didn't go well. <laughs> it was like really cold. <laughs> right, amid the chaos, I should tell everyone, I'm <laughs> drinking hot chocolate. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Mm. Um, I'm also drinking a hot chocolate, but um, I've added a little certain something to it. <laughs> Wrong. Of course you have. So, what's in there? Full, full disclosure: I'm in the office right now. Um, <laughs> my my Wi-Fi at home is misbehaving, so I'm in the office. I've made a hot chocolate in the office, but I also brought in a hip <laughs> flask <laughs> with <laughs> with Frangelico in it. I'm so and proud I'm, of you. I love. I've add, added. I love how you're in the office. <laughs> you're in the office drinking. Am I? I'm at home teetotal. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so I'm drinking like a delicious sort of hot, boozy Nutella kind of experience. Um, oh, highly nice. recommend it. Yeah. Oh, I have. I've got to go out and about and drive, so um, I, I can't. I don't want to hear your. Ex- I don't want to hear excuses, Morgan. Um, when we're doing this as well, because it's Easter time, so we thought we'd mm-hmm. look at chocolate drinks, boozy chocolate type of stuff. Are you an Easter lover? Um, sure, yeah. Indifferent, um, indifferent. <laughs> yeah, I don't really care about Easter. <laughs> yes, kind of, kind of same really. I'll eat chocolate when I want to eat chocolate, you know. <laughs> I don't <laughs> need no Easter, I'm not into. Easter bunny telling me when. I'm not having people telling me to give stuff off for Lent either. Oh no, well that's. I'm not even going to no, talk no, about no. that. That's really. That's. <laughs> That's dumb. Do you know where the Easter Bunny comes from, by the way? Um, Put Albert. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, I don't. They do, they do not. Because um, it's a bit weird, right? You know, you sort of know probably something about the Christian Easter tradition. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, what's what's a bunny? And what has a bunny with eggs got to do with that? Um, and it comes to us from Germanic tradition, really. Germanic folklore. Um, so the the name Easter itself um, is a, a originally a sort of North Germanic Easter uh, Eastern Nordic <laughs> Nordic and German traditions E O S T R E Easter, and yeah. it was all kind of like the festival of spring and rebirth uh, and all that sort of imagery, and there's a goddess associated with it as well called Astara. So there may or may not be. There probably is like an etymological link there. And Ostara was known for having a pet hair <laughs> rather than a bunny. That's kind of like one of her symbols of spring and rebirth. Um, there are some stories as well that the hair laid eggs, which is where we get kind of the Easter bunny and the eggs from. I'm not sure about that story specifically. It seems to have been made up kind of after the fact. But what I do know is that people used to think that hares laid eggs because the nests of hares look very similar to the nests of lapwings because lapwings nest on the ground in the same way and so people would sometimes see nests on the ground with eggs in and not realise it was a lapwings nest and think it was a hare instead so they sort of got this folklore for having that I didn't know that hares had nests Yeah, hares and rabbits all nest Ah, oh, I'm thinking like above ground because, like, no, why would on, you find a nest no, above ground? On the ground and mate. Think... This, is, this is why I said the lapwings have nests on yes. the ground. <laughs> right, sorry, I was too busy thinking about my hot chocolate. Didn't yeah, wake up, there. wake up, hun. 
So that was kind of like um, that was kind of like a story they did the round from the 16th century onwards. I've got records for, um, and then this tradition of doing sort of hares and eggs as a festival of spring that then became associated with Christian Easter comes over to us from Germany in the 19th century. So it's a big kind of mix of influx of Germanic and Nordic stuff that has has come over both in terms of the naming of Easter, but then gradually as well, the sort of Easter bunny and egg tradition. That's where that comes from. But we're going to go even mm. further back in our history of chocolate, because the story of chocolate begins in Mesoamerica from at least 1900 BCE. Although um, there's a publication in Nature, Ecology and Evolution that says the earliest cacao yeast they found was approximately 5,300 years ago. So that's an extra thousand years back. Um, and that was found in a site in southeast Ecuador. Either way, it's it's old. <laughs> and the consensus <laughs> is that cacao was first domesticated in South America. But its use as a beverage, as fermented beverage, specifically prolifer proliferated around Central America. Uh, a bit tongue-tied today. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's drinking at work that does it. Um, yeah, it became the fermented beverages became popular around Mexico specifically. So we're going we're going up from South America domestication to fermented drinking usage uh, into Mexico. The word chocolate comes from the classic Nahuatl word chocolatl, uh, but the etymology before that is a little uncertain. So. Um, some people think um, it means drink of the cacao. Uh, others think that it means beaten or frothed. Others think it means bitter drink. So we're not entirely sure, but um, at least they know what they were talking about. Uh, the terminology <laughs> as well with cacao and cocoa can be a bit confusing because a lot of people use them interchangeably. Most experts these days use the term cacao to refer to the plant or its beans before processing, while the term chocolate refers to anything made from the beans, cocoa generally refers to chocolate in powdered form, although it is also used particularly in British English as a form of cacao. If you see what I mean. Okay, clear as mud. <laughs> <laughs> I did well, find exactly. in my, it gets used interchangeably. Um, in my research, my well, yeah. In my in my research, it was flitting between cocoa and cacao a lot. So, yeah, I'm going to be cacaoing and cocoaing later. <laughs> yeah, generally co cocoa, say, was originally powdered chocolate as opposed to powdered cacao. But mm -hmm. for some reason, particularly in this country, we seem to have just turned cocoa into cacao now. I think it just looks fancier. Um, the Latin name for the cacao tree is Theobroma cacao, which means food of the gods. And I think they were probably mm, right. It is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, when pollinated, the seed of the cacao tree eventually forms this kind of um, ear or, or sheath, averaging 20 inches long, which hangs from the tree trunk itself. So not kind of off the branches, but from the trunk. And within that, there are 30 to 40 brownish um, red almond-shaped beans that are embedded in a pulp, which is kind of viscous and also sweet. The beans themselves are bitter because of the alkaloids that are inside them, but the sweet pulp itself might, might have been the first element that was consumed by humans. So although we're all about the bitter beans now and doing something with it, it was probably the pulp that was the main reason they were domesticating it. Uh, for example, anthropologists from the University of Pennsylvania announced that the discovery of cacao residue on pottery excavated in Honduras that could go back to around 1400 BCE. And in that example, it's the sweet pulp of the cacao fruit which surrounds the beans that had been fermented into an alcoholic beverage. Um, the Mayan people... Um, their preparation for cacao started with cutting open the pods to expose the beans and the pulp. And then the beans were left out to ferment for a few days. And in some cases, the beans were also roasted over an open fire to add a smoky flavor. And then the beans had their husks removed and they were ground into paste. So that version of it is probably a little bit more recognizable than just creating a drink out of the sweet pulp. 
the Maya would season their chocolate by mixing the roasted cacao seed paste into a drink with water, with chili peppers and cornmeal, um, or mm. vanilla and even flowers. And so then they would transfer the mixture repeatedly between pots until the top was covered with a thick foam or a head similar to that found on beer. So it's kind of like starts off thinking, oh, they're doing like a velvetizer thing to make it all smooth, but actually they do it until it becomes frothy like a beer. Mm -hmm. uh, for several centuries in pre-modern Latin America, cacao beans were thought so valuable that they were used as currency. One bean could be traded for a tamale, you know, like tamale, like a tasty street food snack wrapped up thing. A um, hundred beans could purchase a good turkey. <laughs> and according to a 16th century Aztec document, uh, the service is of a prostitute would set you back eight to ten beans, according to how they agree. That's mad. You could have yeah. ten prostitutes for one turkey. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it really kind of puts values into perspective, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> or you could exchange one prostitute for ten tamales. No, which I prefer. Um, both the, <laughs> both the, the Mayans... <laughs> oh, we shouldn't have that. Anyway, both the Mayans and Aztecs <laughs> believed the cacao bean had magical or even divine properties suitable for use in sacred rituals, such as um, those surrounding birth, marriage and death. So, the whole life. Um, the beans were used in uh, betrothal ceremonies among the Maya, especially the upper classes. Um, the info I've got here is the form of the marriage is the bride gives the bridegroom a small stool painted in colours. I think they mean like a seat, not anything else. Oh, um, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I'm glad you, I'm glad you clarified that. that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also gives him five grains of cacao and says to him, these I give thee as a sign that I accept thee as my husband. And he also gives her some new skirts and another five grains of cacao saying the same thing. So it's very symbolic. Like, they both give each other five grains. You might as well not bother, right? But she yeah. gets some new skirts and he gets a stool. I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, that's a bit of shit. <laughs> I, did, I, I couldn't uncover any, anything else about why on that, on that front. Um, <laughs> Aztec sacrifice victims as well, who... Um, felt too melancholy to join in ritual dancing before their death. I mean, you would feel a bit melancholy, wouldn't you, if you were about to be sacrificed? <laughs> They'd be given a gourd of chocolate um, to cheer them up. And just for a little bit of extra spice, uh, they it would have been tinged with the blood of previous victims. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sure. Do you think that would cheer you up? Uh, yeah. Go out with a bang and all that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's um, that's a really quick overview of sort of pre-conquests chocolate. Sweetened chocolate didn't appear until the Europeans um, came to the Americas and started sampling the native cuisine. Legend has it that the Aztec, Aztec king Montezuma welcomed the Spanish explorer Hernando Cortes with a banquet that included drinking chocolate, um, having mistaken him for a reincarnated deity instead of a conquering invader. Which is a rather tragic mistake to make. Um, you don't want to make that. But it's also why you may, um, you may know, have heard of the chocolate Montezuma. That's why it's after that legend. Mm. Um, in 1568, Bernal Diaz, who accompanied Cortes in the conquest of the Aztec Empire, wrote that he witnessed, from time to time, they served him, that's Montezuma, in cups of pure gold, a certain drink made from cacao. It was said that it gave one power over women, but this I never saw. <laughs> I did see them bring in more than 50 large pitchers of cacao with froth in it. And he drank some of it, the women serving with great reverence. I like that extra bit of shade. It's supposed to give you power of women, but I never saw it. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got Jose de Acosta, who was a Spanish Jesuit missionary who lived in Peru and then Mexico in the later 16th century. And his description goes, 
loathsome to such as are not acquainted with it, having a scum or froth that is very unpleasant taste. Yet it is a drink very much esteemed among the Indians. <laughs> so we're going to miss there. Uh, wherewith they feast noblemen who pass through their country. The Spaniards, both men and women, that are accustomed to the country are very greedy of this chocolate. They say they make diverse sorts of it, some hot, some cold, some temperate, and put therein much of that chilli. Yea, they make paste thereof, the which they say is good for the stomach and against the catarrh. So, chocolate clearly didn't suit the foreigners' taste buds at first. Um, there's another one who described it in his writings as a bitter drink for pigs. Uh, but <laughs> once mixed with honey or cane sugar, that's when it became really popular throughout Spain. So Europeans just didn't understand the appeal of bitter taste that they were used to. So they started adding sugar and that's when it really takes off in Europe. Uh, that course meant that cacao plantations spread as the English and Dutch and French colonised and planted. Um, and as they were doing that, the the Mesoamerican workers were, um, I was going to say depleted. It's, it's to an impersonal world. They were killed off, basically, because of all the disease that happened um, due to the poor work conditions um poor wage for labour and, and enslavement, essentially. So um, that's when they started to enslave Africans instead to replace the dead Mesoamericans on the plantations. Uh, it did remain largely a, um, a product for the rich until the invention of the steam engine made mass production possible in the late 1700s. So even though, you know, they did use slavery a lot for it, it was still quite an expensive product uh, despite all that. But yeah, the steam engine changed everything. So, in 1729, the first mechanical cocoa grinder was invented in Bristol, uh, England. Walter Churchman petitioned the King of England for um, the patent and sole use of an invention for the expeditious, fine and clean making of chocolate by an engine. And that patent was granted uh, by King George II for a water engine to make chocolate, specifically, it said. Um, so we probably used mm. water-powered edge runners for preparing the um, cacao beans, um, and that meant it was crushed at a much larger scale than um, previously. And then that patent was eventually um, bought by Joseph Fry in 1761. So he was the one who then took on that refining process. Um, there's a Dutch chemist, Conrad van Houten, 1828 who found a way to make powdered chocolate by removing about half the natural fat or the co cocoa or cacao butter we would know um, as from the uh, the chocolate solution and then pulverizing what remained and treating the mixture with alkaline salts to cut the bitter taste and that method became known as dutch cocoa and that was the thing that kind of needed to happen before we can get to solid chocolate um I won't go too much into solid chocolate because obviously we're looking at the drink, but it's mm -hmm. kind of useful to know where this journey goes. Um, so the, the creation of the first modern chocolate bar is credited to Joseph Fry, who in 1847 discovered that he could make a mouldable chocolate paste by adding the melted uh, cacao butter back into the Dutch cocoa. So first of all, they removed it to make cocoa, then they put it back in to make the solid chocolate. Um, in 1868, a little company called Cadbury uh, was marketing their boxes uh, of chocolates in England and um, milk chocolate then hit the market a few years later that had been pioneered by Nestle. All kind of very familiar companies that are still around now. Mm -hmm. right? um, and 1879, the um, texture and, and consequently the taste of chocolate was improved again with the invention of the conching machine, and that came from Rodolf Lint. So the Lint mm. uh, chocolate was the one that invented this um, this method to improve the texture and taste. So th this was because of um, improvements in machines. Um, it went from this transformation from being primarily a drink into food, and then lots of different types of chocolate began to emerge. Um, at around that same time, the price of chocolate began to drop dramatically in the 1890s, 1900s, as the production began to shift away from uh, the New World, specifically to Asia and Africa. 
and therefore chocolate could be purchased by the middle classes. And really, that takes us up to all the chocolate and all the companies that you would recognise today, really. That brings us up to the modern age. So it was those very specific technological advances, mostly in the 19th century, that turned it from being a drink into a food stuff that we mostly associate it with now. Just before I hand over to you, because I've reached the modern age, I mm-hmm. thought I'd let you know that you can still get a largely uncorrupted Mexican chocolate drink um, today, known as chilate, mm-hmm. is, is one word for it, there are a few. And that's prepared with cocoa, with rice, with cinnamon and sugar, um, originally from Guerrero in Mexico. And that can be served um, cold and is usually accompanied by um, uh, buñuelos, which is like a donut, essentially, some fried dough. And mm, yes, please. Delicious. Um, atoli, or maize drink, um, as it's known in, in Nahuatl, is the base for chalate. And it's a traditional hot corn and masa-based beverage um, of Mexican origin. So you may remember, mm-hmm. you know, when I was introducing, I said, oh, they put cornmeal in it. That is kind of the base of the drink, of the chocolate drinks they have. And then uh, chocolate atole is known as champurado and typically accompanies tamales, which we now know you can buy for one bean, um, and is very (laughs) popular during Day of the Dead, uh, which is observed on November 2nd, and also for their Christmas holiday season known as Las Posadas. Chilate is um, this drink native to Central America, and it's made with chili and roasted corn and cocoa, um, and they might also add anise and pepper and ginger and cinnamon. There's lots of variations and, and other words for it, but just want to let you know that amongst the big journey it's gone on, they are still drinking pretty much the original versions um, that they have been doing for thousands of years. If you go to Mexico, you can find it. <gasps> Should we put Mexico on the spreadsheet? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, done. <laughs> Tequila, chocolate, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. all of the food. Yes, please. Uh, want to talk about the war? Which, I mean, <laughs> which of the many? <laughs> <laughs> World War One and World War Two. Okay, sure, hit me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just delved into that uh, side of things with my hot chocolate research. Um, it was just interesting how kind of different a, a role it played, per se, in the different World Wars. So, in World War One, it was more about producers trying to encourage people to support them and buy it and they were doing their best to just try and keep themselves afloat per se lots of patriotism patriotism as well um so as the war broke out uh george payne and co of tower bridge london uh so they had a trial pack and an illustrated book as well under the slogan what we've got we'll hold what we've not we're after so that was um one of the more significant uh, patriotic hot chocolate moves in World War One, mm-hmm. but also um, Lincolnshire-based cocoa makers Welco, uh, they urged customers to support home industries, uh, and in their packs of hot chocolate, they were offering coupons um, in their tins. And if you gathered twenty-four coupons, you could exchange those for a box of their souvenir butterfly chocolates. Um, so yeah, lots of initiatives and different people doing different things to try and just boost sales. Um, mm. But lots of companies, unfortunately, getting boycotted as well. So understandably, German goods were widely um, boycotted. But this also did extend to companies that unfortunately had Germanic names. Um, and in 1914, in October, there was an ad placed in the Daily Mirror that said... The proprietors of Schweitzer's Cocutina and Fairy Coco beg to inform their clients that none of their products are manufactured in Germany. They are a private English company managed by a board of English directors. So, yeah, there were mm. lots of companies, unfortunately, suffering the consequences of having Germanic names. <laughs> and, and exactly the same thing still happens, right? Remember when we did the... Um... Russia and then Ukraine episodes on vodka about all the vodkas that people assumed were Russian but actually weren't and they kept having to do all these press releases being like don't pour us down the right drain it's nothing to do with us Um, (laughs) and 
how many people stopped drinking Corona beer when coronavirus came out? <laughs> like, you I know, know, it's just people's behaviours don't change much, do they? <laughs> it's crazy. Well, there was one guy in particular during World War One who was having a really <laughs> rough time of it. So his name was Eugen Sandow. He was a Prussian selling German recipe cocoa and he had a thick German accent as well. So <laughs> he was having a bit of a tough time during World War I in London trying to sell his cocoa. So he devised a promotion as well. He handed out postcards to all of his customers, whether they bought or not. Um, and he said the first 500 British soldiers to post this postcard from German territory will be entitled to nominate any wife, mum, sister or sweetheart to get a silver-plated porcelain cocoa set. So he brought out the big guns. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, uh, the warfare actually turned out to be longer lasting than his company. <laughs> he stopped uh, selling in 1916. So despite mm. his best efforts, didn't work, bless him. Um, but as I mentioned, in World War Two, it took a bit of a different approach. Um, it went more from just trying to encourage people to buy that to actually help the war effort. Uh, so in July 1940, um, Cadbury introduced economy red label drinking chocolate, which became quite an iconic tin for them. And it claimed to be obviously double strength, so it would go a bit further. So there were a lot more companies doing a bit more to help families and help companies and help soldiers rather than just trying to push sales. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1941, Fry introduced um, a cocoa shelter service. Uh, so they had a Ford van which was fitted with an urn and cups and they said it would be ready to travel to any area that was um, affected by bombing. Uh, in its final week of service in bomb-hit Bath, it uh, served 12,000 cups of hot cocoa to those who needed it. Mm-hmm. Um, Brook Bond Dividend Cocoa, so-called because each tin had a dividend coupon inside. Uh, and a full dividend card was worth five shillings in cash. So kind of like your local coffee shop for coffee. Buy five, get one free. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. um, also, Roundtree were selected by the government to make um, National Milk Cocoa, Namco for short. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was devised by a scientific advisor as a high-protein drink for the under-18s who'd been put to work during the war. Um, it was introduced in November 1943 at a maximum of a penny a cup. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> let's stop talking about the war. <laughs> let's uh, okay. move on. We're into the 50s. Um, round three again. Um, they marked um, the coronation of the Queen uh, with a souvenir cocoa canister called Monarch Queen. Uh, they also introduced um, a drink called Sunjock. Uh, it was around about the same time that Sainsbury's had launched their own brand, Red Label Cocoa. Now, this is like the first instance I could find of like, you know, the whole um, Colin the Caterpillar issue between Aldi and Boxers. Yeah, yeah J.R. Sainsbury's Nautily in the 50s launched their own brand, Red Label Cocoa. It looked very, very similar to the Cadbury's ones. And was often um, confused with the Cadbury's ones. Mm-hmm. Cadbury's weren't too happy with that. So obviously a few years later they rebranded. <laughs> uh, and Cadbury's drinking chocolate replaced their very famous red label. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also then had their first ever advertisement. And it actually was on the first ever evening of commercial TV. It was 1955. Uh, and the voiceover said what's the time after television it's chocolate time time for a smooth smiling cup of Cadbury's drinking chocolate the luxury evening drink I'm sold Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Cadbury's continued then to trailblaze with their adverts uh, in the 60s Um, they had lots of infamous jingles I'm obviously far too young to remember it Mm -hmm. but our parents I asked my mum and she remembered the jingle cup hands here comes Cadbury's cup hands here comes Cadbury's cup hands here comes Cadbury's now something like that anybody listening to that who knows it would probably say I butchered that (laughs) 
I mean, I, I haven't even had the original, <laughs> but I can tell you butchered it. <laughs> um, so I moved into the 70s, and I'll be mm. honest, when I was researching hot chocolate in the 70s, I just kept getting the band hot chocolate. Uh, so yeah, instantly would I was you like... you sexy thing. Are you going to sing, <laughs> you like... sing a medley of hot chocolate? <laughs> no, I'm just going to give you three fun facts about hot chocolate, the band. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. Do you know what? I've done something similar later on. You'll, you'll find out. <laughs> but yes, go on. <laughs> Uh, so you sexy thing mm-hmm. yes, actually I am. began as a oh, it began as started. a b-side <laughs> <laughs> it was a b-side for another single called blue night um and it wasn't until their producer mickey mort remixed it several months later it became a hit in 1975 so it was never intended to be the banger that it was wow um you sexy thing um yes. <laughs> I was actually just saying it to you that time. Yeah, I know. Um, so they hot chocolate played at Charles and Diana's pre-wedding reception at Buckingham Palace in July 1981. Mm-hmm. Fun fact. And last but not least, hot chocolate started as a novelty act doing reggae covers of popular hits, but their cover of "Give Peace a Chance" found its way to John Lennon, and the rest is history. Mm-hmm. So Very technically, good. you could say that John Lennon. Found hot chocolate. Cheers, John. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings me to the modern day. And I think you're yeah. going to stop me talking nonsense now. So I'm going to pass over to you. <laughs> okay. Do you know what? I'm actually going to take us just to confuse everyone back in time again a little bit. Because okay. we mentioned fries and Cadbury's and round trees. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know what they all have in common apart from making chocolate? Uh, they also make sweets. I don't know. They are all Quaker um, companies. So I was wondering kind of like, what is it? What is it about the Quakers and chocolate that has, you know, made it such a match? So I've kind of looked into that. So we are going back in time a little bit, but, you know, I thought now is the time to address it. So Quakers, for those of you who don't know, were formed as a protest against the established church, but they refused to swear an allegiance to the Church of England so an act mm. of parliament was passed um, and that meant that it was called the Quakers Act and it meant that those members were excluded from public life and universities and debarred from many public and civic offices along with other non-conformists, um, which is obviously pretty terrible. Um, so things like the professions of medicine and law were not open to them at all. And that explains mm-hmm. why so many Quakers gravitated at that time towards business and commerce, in particular food, it's basically because they were allowed to. Um, so John Cadbury, um, first of all, served his apprenticeship in the tea trade. Uh, his father gave him some money to set up his own business. And in 1824, he became a tea dealer and coffee roaster in Birmingham on Bull Street. Um, in that shop, he also made cocoa-based drinks by grinding the nibs in, in a pestle and mortar. So the old, very old-fashioned way. So Cadbury saw that potential for cocoa powder and using his experience roasting coffee beans and preparing uh, the nibs in that way, he decided to open a factory in 1831. Uh, the earliest price list dated 1842 shows he sold 16 varieties of drinking chocolate and 11 cocos. Well, that's a lot. Isn't it? It was it was all business. Joseph Fry um, was an apothecary, or chemist, as we might call him, say, in Bristol. And he sold cocoa in his apothecary um, in 1759. And his angle on it was um, its health-giving properties. Um, and that soon became popular in Bath where the coffee houses, you know, had really taken off and they were selling it to the aristocracy. Then in 1761, he teamed up with John Vaughan to buy Walter Churchman's company, as I mentioned, who were the leading cocoa manufacturers at the time. Um, in 1764, Fry, Vaughan and Co. had agents in 53 towns and a chocolate warehouse in London. I think that's a warehouse with chocolate in as opposed to a warehouse made of chocolate. 
Um, (laughs) Joseph's son introduced the Watts steam engine in 1795, which made fries the first chocolatier to use factory production methods um, to manufacture their products. Fry also um, applies and obtained a patent for a roasting machine to roast the cocoa beans. And by 1824, they were using 40% of all the cocoa that was imported into Britain. Employees uh, for them were paid relatively well. Uh, If you want the numbers, it's 10 shillings a week. um, At a time when farm labourers would only get seven. So it was a very appealing job to go and have. Mm. Uh, They introduced the first chocolate bar in 1847. They melted cocoa butter, mixed it with the cocoa powder and sugar and pressed the paste into a mould. Um, it was difficult to extract all the all the fat, all the uh, the butter from the cocoa. So additives like potato flour were used to stop the cocoa powder from sticking together. And if you think that, I mean, that's not bad because at least it's edible. Some of the less scrupulous um, chocolate manufacturers would add things like brick dust to enhance the oh. colour of their chocolate as well. Wow. Uh, kind of flashbacks to the absinthe episode, right? <laughs> Why do people keep putting brick <laughs> dust in everything? Just stop. <laughs> um, so these these Quaker companies, Fry, Roundtree, Cadbury, um, had quite a progressive um, attitude to their workforce. Roundtree founded the village of New Erswick um, for low-income families in 1902. They provided education both for the children and the adults. Roundtree is um, particularly remembered for pioneering adult schools. They really believed in lifelong learning. Um, He also took an interest, as well as the employees, in the wider community. Joseph's son, uh, Sibo, undertook a study of poverty in York, and the family then played an important part in setting up the York Public Library. 140 cottages were built for the Cadbury workers near their factory at Bourneville. Um, and infant mortality and death rates in the village in 1915 were half those of Birmingham. And George's wife Elizabeth played a crucial part in that work as well. Cadbury also invented the idea of a weekend. That's right. It was what? the first. Yep. It was the first company to grant their workers a five day working week and to provide medical facilities, a canteen, leisure activities, community gardens. Um, Bourneville is very near where I grew up, so we went on lots of school trips there. <laughs> so this this news Aww. was not news to me. I've been been to the Cadbury factory and heard all about their workers quite a lot. It's a beautiful village. Um, Quaker employees also pioneered pension schemes, giving men and women equal pensions. They lobbied for improved labour laws. They were major activists as well in the campaign to abolish slavery. So Elizabeth Fry, who was on the £5 note for a long time, was a prison reform campaigner. And Beatrice Cadbury gave her fortune away to the poor. So there's loads of good stuff that they did, um, you know, either through kind of their attitude as Quakers or their their reforms uh, to work. However, I will, being a 21st century person, add in a little bit of a washing alert proviso because Cadbury's was mired in scandal um, because throughout their vocal commitments to anti-slavery practices, most of their cacao came from Sao Tome and Principe, where this was very much in practice. Slavery was rife there. Even after um, naming reports about it, they only released their um, their own reluctant reports seven years after those came out. I won't go into all the details, but this should sound pretty familiar for anyone familiar with corporate washing. Um, in that they said, we're very anti-slavery, Someone created a report and said, well, most of where your supply chain is coming from practices slavery. And they went, oh, we'll look into that. And seven years later, released a report, kind of washing their hands of it. Mm. So undoubtedly, yes, they did bring great reform at home. But I can't say the proof is out there for their values abroad. They spoke, they, they talked a bit talk, but they didn't practice it in the products that they were actually putting out. Oil industry, anyone? <laughs> or, you know, anything else? So, yeah, you know, it's it's a mixed bag, but I think I think even now people make quite a lot over how good they were as companies. And I think actually quite a lot of that was self-interest. So, um, I thought I'd tell you a bit more about um, London while I'm in the histories as well. 
So the first mention of drinking chocolate in London was where do you think? First written record. Bridge. No, the London first written Bridge? record. Who wrote it? Office written record. Uh, who wrote it? Um. King. I'm going to say it was a king. Right. Um, as ever, the answer is Samuel Pepys. <laughs> of course. Jesus. <laughs> the Diary of Samuel Pepys. This is a good one as well. So it was the day after the coronation of King Charles II in 1661. And he wrote that he was using it as a stomach settler for the effects of last night's drink. <laughs> it was his hangover drink of choice. <laughs> oh my God. I can't imagine anything worse on a hangover. <laughs> a hot rich well, he, chocolate oil. <laughs> he enjoyed it. <laughs> nope. Um, drinking chocolate was also available in the coffee houses that were very new at the time. So coffee actually had only arrived in London five years previous to the coffee houses then serving chocolate as well. But it was kind of it was a bit watered down, and also most of the people who went to the coffee house wanted some of that caffeine kick and uh, cocoa didn't really offer that, that caffeine kick in those quantities so <gasps> i bet it blew it their minds when mocha was invented when what when mocha was invented <laughs> when mocha was invented yeah i haven't i haven't got that on record <laughs> <laughs> um the first chocolate house specifically then because as i say they weren't like massive in the coffee houses at first but the first chocolate house um, there was a real cluster of them around St. James, I think because, as I said at first, it was such a sort of aristocratic, upper-class thing. Um, the first chocolate house was in Queen's Head Alley, near Bishopsgate, uh, in the city of London. So actually not not the one that ended up being in this cluster around St. James. It was in 1657, uh, and it was a Frenchman who opened the premises. Um, and he the, the advertising slogan was that it was an excellent West India drink. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it was first put out but as I say there were lots of these um, chocolate houses uh, for the wealthy and one such chocolate house was White's on St James's Street that was established in 1693 it still exists now you can still go to White's it's a private members club on St James I mean you can't go but one could go um, <laughs> <laughs> you can't go you can't go <laughs> In the early days, it had this reputation as being quite a raucous establishment. Um, there were lots, there was lots of money gambled um, while people were drinking hot chocolates, which is such a kind of weird image. Um, but it, we've actually seen this. We've actually seen an image of this because it's the sixth episode in Hogarth's A Rake's Progress which we covered ah, on a on a previous yeah. episode. But that one where they're all kind of having too much fun and drinking, they're drinking hot chocolates and it's in, in that painting. And that's the club they were at, White's, which still exists. It's that mad. Do you think they had Frangelica with it, like you've got? Oh, I imagine so. I imagine they put a bit, <laughs> a bit of something something while they're at work. Um, <laughs> it's Yeah, so White's is a really kind of important point in the history of chocolates. Um, and in fact, when you do go to Cadbury Wild in Bourneville, uh, I've been a million times, so it's not on my spreadsheet, but it might be on yours. Uh, they've recreated mm -hmm. the facade there, so you can actually see the old whites when you go into the Cadbury World exhibit at Bourneville. Um, another chocolate house in that area, the Cocoa Tree on Pall Mall. And uh, that one is notable because it also doubled up as the Tory headquarters in the 18th century. This is how posh chocolate mm -hmm. houses were. Um, you know, when they first came out, it really was that it was the Tory headquarters. In fact, if you were super, super posh, you wouldn't even go to the chocolate house because you would have your own dedicated chocolate kitchen installed in your house. So there are some palaces Whoa. that had this. Hampton Court Palace actually uh, was one such building. Um, it had its own chocolate kitchen designed by Sir Christopher Wren uh, in 1690. Uh, just mm. as the chocolate craze was kicking off, you cannot get bougier than that. Um, and so they would have their own staff dedicated just to producing chocolate. <laughs> so chocolate was a, a morning drink. You know, a lot of the royals would have their, their hot chocolate in the morning with breakfast. Um, William III, though, was particularly fond of it and so just drank it throughout the day. Um, if you go to Hampton Court Palace today, you can still see it. You can still see the inside of the chocolate kitchens. It's the only surviving one in the country. But yeah, it was quite the craze for a while. Uh, one more sort of 
London Royal Chocolate Connection, I want to tell you about Niall Hanback, and that's Thomas Tozier, who was chocolate maker to King George the First um, and employed at Hampton Court Palace from 1717. Um, it was a very quite a privileged job really he worked with you know expensive exotic ingredients he had access to the king's bedchamber to serve him his morning drink prior to that appointment he ran his own business called Tozier's Chocolate House in Greenwich which is no longer there um, and that was on in an area that was originally known as Chocolate Row which is now just off Blackheath Hill uh, in our West Grove Tozier's wife, Grace, kept the Greenwich business running while he was off working at Hampton Court um, and seems to have made a good job of it because Tozier still exists as a chocolate making company today even though the original site uh, isn't there uh, but focusing more on solid chocolate than liquid variety now but they do have an outlet in Spitalfields and Hackney mm. that way and Tozier's, now you know where that's come from uh, Just on that, obviously I loved it well, I was looking for decadent chocolate, drinking chocolate experiences in South Wales and Swansea. Um, didn't find, well, it, there are a few places, but I found something way more interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so there's once a month in the middle of nowhere in the woods in South Wales and Swansea, you can join um, a group of people in a cacao and ecstatic dance in nature. So it's a big shamanic group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just read the description to you and you can decide if you want to uh, pop okay. along. The next one is a week tomorrow. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, join us for natural healing, cacao ceremony and an immersive dance journey in the Bishop's Wood near Swansea. Connect with the rhythm of your soul with like-minded people in the beautiful natural setting. Enjoy a smooth blend of elemental music from tribal and shamanic beats, reggae, trance and Amazonian healing songs. A heartfelt and joyful event to delight your five senses, uplift your spirit, be showered with love and remind you how amazing you are. Ceremonial Cacao. At the beginning of this session, we will introduce Ceremonial Cacao. As well as being incredibly delicious, Ceremonial Cacao helps us to ground, enhance our dance experience and open our hearts. It can also gently guide us to connect with hidden dimensions of ourselves. At Mystic Cocoon, so that's the name of the company. At Mystic Cocoon, we prepare cacao with great respect for the indigenous wisdom keepers of this master plant medicine, infusing it with prayers, songs and love during the whole preparation process. Bring your favourite mug for the ceremony. Ecstatic Dance, you're invited to this safe, playful space where the world, whole of you is welcome. In this session, you will be gently guided to breathe, let go of stress, recharge and move as you feel. Dancing and cultivating authentic movement from the inside is deeply nurturing and healing. Be prepared to deeply connect with the elements, move, sweat, experience and enjoy. Unlike clubbing, our dance sets are built like waves, moving from slow and mellow to very dynamic and everything else in between. Gently guiding you to stretch your body and mind in many directions, to experience the vast spectrum of your emotions with mindfulness and wild abandon. Most of the time when people dance, it's to look good to others, but here we dance to connect with our authentic natural selves. This is a 100% nature dance set in the gorgeous roundhouse with an open fire deep in the Bishop's Wood Natural Reserve on the Gower Coast. So how do you fancy that? Cacao ceremony and some immersive dance? I mean, I was into in the, the woods. I was into the cacao and going into the woods, but I wasn't so keen on connecting with others. Not not into that, um, or being showered mm. with love because I'm not sure. Okay. What kind of substances that involves, um, and I might want to chat afterwards. I'm also wondering if, when they said, you know, kind of connecting with the ancient practices and stuff, they're familiar with the elements that involve human sacrifice or indeed trading beans for prostitutes. <laughs> Perhaps we should inform them. Um. Well, there are some guidelines that might change your mind. Um, guidelines, you were asked not to talk during the ceremony or the dance. It's an immersive experience and it's conversation free. So you don't have to speak to anyone. Okay. No drugs, no alcohol, just cacao and dance. Okay. And no phones. All right. <laughs> I might go, you know. <laughs> I'm tempted just to see what it's like. <laughs> I'm sure you'll have a great time. 
So yeah, I think I'll leave you in London with the fancy hot chocks and I'll mm-hmm. go down the woods and immerse myself in trees and dance and have a caca ceremony and hopefully not get sacrificed. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a hope for every weekend, isn't it? Um, I thought we probably should mention Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <gasps> yes, please. Oh, can we somehow... Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you found the tube? Please tell me you found the tube so that we can go down. And I'm going to put it on the spreadsheet. The tubes that we can go down. You know, like the chocolate river with the tubes and like... Well, that's, you get I mean, that's the, the bit tube. I'm going to talk about and it's <gasps> not a great experience. So um, okay, right. maybe, okay, maybe reserve your excitement for going up the tube. Um, <laughs> so Charlie and the Chocolate Factory uh, is the title of the book. The, the older film um, was called Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory remember kind of different title mm-hmm. as a child that used to confuse everyone i think it was like which one am i supposed to call it um there's a reason behind that and it's the quakers again <laughs> <laughs> so the film um the the gene wilder film was part financed by the quaker oats company and they were releasing a new chocolate bar called the wonka bar and that's why they um wanted the title changed so that people would be more familiar with Willy Wonka and the Wonka bar as opposed to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That's why. Mm. That's why it's changed. Um, Quakers. Bloody in, marketing. Bloody marketing States. people. Um, <laughs> in the book itself, uh, Wonka says that theirs is the only factory in the world that mixes their chocolate by waterfall, which is alluding to that chocolate making process that Lind came up with of crunching where it aerates and smooths the texture. Um, so when you saw kind of you know that that chocolate waterfall and the chocolate river I mean it looked very tempting right that's why you're like have you found mm. it can we go and drink it <laughs> okay so here's here's what it really contained um, <laughs> there's an interview <laughs> I found um, where the guy who played Augustus Gloop Michael Bolner is talking with the woman who played Veruca Salt Julie Dawn Cole and he's like, yeah, it was not chocolate. It was really cold. It was stinky water. Uh, I was there all day long jumping in and out um, and being around with wet clothes. And uh, she's like, yeah, I kind of had to, fell into this disgusting stuff that had been sitting there for three weeks. It had lights on it. People were oh. emptying their coffee cup dregs into it. <laughs> and on top of that, for the filming experience, he says the, the river was actually only 10 centimetres deep. But, you know, like, mm. he, you see him plunging down clearly deeper than 10 centimetres. And they cut a hole mm. about only a square metre that he had to fall into. But he couldn't see it at all. So they just kept <gasps> saying, oh, it's there. And he had to just face plant <laughs> into where he hoped the hole was. This poor kid. You know, oh hoping he God. wouldn't knock himself out in the, uh, in the chocolate river. <laughs> Can you imagine um, that now? Health and safety nightmare. Yeah, there was there was absolutely no health and safety on this film at all. <laughs> There's some wild stories. <laughs> um, the art director, uh, Harper Goff, did uh, an interview as well in 2009 um, where he said that um, there was a lot of weird stuff in the river. <laughs> he calls it, Actually, he calls it dark water, not chocolate river. <laughs> he said the main ingredient was indeed chocolate powder. But eventually it started to really stink. It left off a foul odour after a while of sitting there. And also the churning of the waterfalls caused it to go white. Um, So their solution was to add anti-shampoo powder and other chemicals into it. So there was all kinds of weird stuff going in there. It was like they hadn't just thought, can we add like brown food colouring and some corn flour or whatever to make a gloopy liquid? They sort of put chocolate in and went, oh, that that stinks. Let's put some weird chemicals in to stop the stink and stop it going white. And you're like, this is not the way to create a special effect. Do you still want to go and frolic in that? (sighs) No, thank you. No, exactly. It's Um, not going on the spreadsheet. In the the 2005 remake, which went back to the title of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, they got a UK chemical company called Vickers to create a brown non-toxic substance for their version of the river <laughs> um so it wasn't it wasn't computer uh, graphics it wasn't generated and that's what it was real it had about a million liters of fake chocolate river 
that had been was being recirculated and then they used a more viscous version for the waterfall so two different versions of it um they mm. said that the final mixture was one percent hydroxyethyl cellulose 0.2 organic pigments and food grade biocide in a water base which still doesn't sound very appealing does it but i do trust them that it was safer <laughs> um they even built a production plant on site uh, to manufacture um, the over a million liters of fake chocolate that they needed um and it took 12 weeks to film so they used quite a lot of um stabilizers as well and some biocides to try and um, prevent microbial growth yum 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 i'm glad i've supported chocolate rivers dream. for anyone yeah <laughs> um what? is it is it actually possible you may be wondering for a chocolate river to exist um so much like a chocolate fountain if you had enough time and money you could probably make a river flow for a limited time but it would require massive a massive shallow heating base and a lot of electricity um you can't rely on water to make it flow because chocolate is insoluble in water you will have noticed that if you've ever kind of put cocoa powder into hot water and sort of try to mix it up and it doesn't it doesn't happen um so that's you know that's why chocolate kind of clumps up and crumbles or develop type develops types of bloom when you see it go white it's because it's just not water soluble um most chocolate as well contains dairy, uh, which will obviously go bad if you're going to leave it as a river. Mm. If by some miracle you managed to chill the river, it wouldn't flow. It would only last a few days once it's exposed to the open air. Uh, and on top of that, chocolate absorbs the odour of its surroundings. Never leave it in the open air. Um, so it's it's very highly impractical. Um and on that note, uh, two people in the US died in the 21st century from drowning in chocolate. <laughs> what a way to go. Just in case you were also wondering about the is it possible from the Augustus Gloop side. Yes, two people <laughs> have done that this century. Um, it's very tragic, shouldn't laugh, but there we go. Um, chocolate fountain note. The world's first chocolate fountain was presented in Cologne in 1989, where I was recently. And you can still see it to this day in the city's chocolate museum, and it still works. Um, mm. A lot of a lot of people say it was a Canadian invention, but it was actually two years after that. Two years later, a Canadian company developed a chocolate fountain for the restaurant industry. So they're known because they sort of took it to an expo and all the restaurants adopted it. So really, it kind of like, it was them who kick-started the um the chocolate fountain craze but um yeah originally it was done in cologne in 1989 um chocolate fountains are a bit grim though to be honest um if you're given the option to have one because because of what i just said basically about you know it, it not being soluble in water they add lots of vegetable oil into the chocolate that you get in chocolate fountains to keep it viscous and keep it flowing so when you're when you're tasting the chocolate in chocolate fountains i mean not only is it absorbing smells in the air around it and if people like put their fingers and stuff in it it's also mostly vegetable oil so just maybe don't yeah. <laughs> is, is uh, my advice on that well well since you've ruined my dreams of chocolate fountains and chocolate waterfalls and chocolate rivers guess what I'm here for. i guess all i'm left with is boozy chocolate yeah yeah well, that, <laughs> that can get behind <laughs> um i've made us a shopping list of tasty boozy chocolates um, number one on my list is from a company called um, Tempest Fuji or Fugit F U G I T. Tempest Fu Fugit, Fu time flies. Yeah, Tempest Fugit spirits. Uh, so they produce a creme de cacao that's based on a 19th century recipe. It's a very thick and sweet liquid. Um, so no, probably not one that you'd kind of drink over ice on its own. It's more often using cocktails or sometimes they serve it with soda water because it's a very concentrated, thick, sweet liquid with nice, rich vanilla notes. So creme de cacao from Tempest Fugit Spirits. Number two on the list, Patron. Uh, they have a bottle of XO Cafe Dark, which is um, a combination of coffee, cacao and tequila, which delivers a nice kick. You're nodding as if you've probably had that before. I have had that, and I've had sort of an imitation version of it called Blackfire on this podcast a couple of times, actually. But yeah, mm. they're great. 
Yums. Um, another one, Dorda double chocolate liqueur. So this is from Poland. Uh, it's made by blending fine dark chocolate with um, milk and a rye vodka. So a vodka paste chocolate liqueur. It's something different. Um, an Italian one now that I'm going to pronounce very badly. Uh, Bottega Nero Chocolato Gianduja. Gianduja. Gianduja, there we are. <laughs> it's, uh, made from Italian grappa, that one is. Uh, velvety and hazelnutty. It's often referred to as liquid Nutella. Tastes just like Nutella. Mm. Uh, another one I found, um, couldn't find many white chocolate liqueurs, but I found one from um, Shilin. You'd recognise the bottle if you saw it. Shilin, it's, um, they've got like a the Celtic cross or Celtic knot in their logo. Uh, they do a lot of kind of Irish liqueurs, things like that. But they've got mm -hmm. a white chocolate one. So uh, as expected, it's a creamy white chocolate liqueur, but it's got spices and notes of Irish whiskey in it as well. Um, another one, I wanted to just find things that were a bit outside the box, and I did find La Maison Fontaine's Chocolate Absinthe Liqueur. Mm. Um, so this is, again, based on a, a very um, older recipe. So it's a 1920s recipe for creme de cacao they've used for theirs, but they've blended absinthe in with it as well. Mm -hmm. And last on my list is one that I have been lucky enough to drink a lot of Mozart's um, oh, yeah. dark chocolate liqueur. So you you gifted me this for my birthday, I think, a few years ago. Oh yeah, probably. Um, I'm, I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's from Salzburg in Austria. I don't know too much about it other than that it's blinking delicious. Well, I've actually got some bits I can tell you about that. Oh, please if do. you're done, if you're done with your busy chocolate rundown, I'm done with my list. I put Mozart at the bottom was... because it's the one I've had and it's the one I enjoy. Well, I mean, <laughs> I was just about to say they they all sound delicious. I'm really glad I've had some booze with this chat. Are you now kind of at the point where you thought where you're thinking maybe I should have just put a little bit on the side, ready? <laughs> yeah. Bit of Mozart. See me off. Yeah, I have. I can tell you some stuff about Mozart because I do like it. Um, just before I get there, actually, though, I wanted to mention chocolate beer because we haven't we haven't mm -hmm. spoken about it, and you will see labels on on things that say chocolatey stout or chocolate porter. Mm -hmm. Most most of the time, they don't have chocolate in them. They haven't been made with chocolate or nibs or anything. It's just that they've got chocolate like flavors because um, the barley has been uh, roasted until it's dark. And it gives that distinctly chocolatey taste and aroma to the final beer. It's the same thing, mm. to be honest, when you um, drink some red wines, for example, and people say, oh, there's chocolate notes. Basically, if anything has been roasted dark, because we're so familiar with the taste of chocolate, we think that a lot of things taste mm -hmm. like chocolate, but it doesn't mean it's got it in. You can mm -hmm. get chocolate beer that has been brewed with cocoa powder. Um, it's extra chocolatey if they put it in before it ferments, before the fermentation stage, instead of later on adding like a chocolate flavour. And obviously you can't put um, cocoa butter in there because it would spoil. So you can get them, mm. but they're rarer. So that's why I didn't really go into any specific chocolate chocolatey beers because I think we confuse ourselves in that. It tastes chocolatey, but it's not chocolate. Mm -hmm. um, Mozart then. So uh, this, so this, this company, as you said, it's a, a they do chocolate liqueurs, and it's developed its brand around Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, the composer who was born in Salzburg, um, where it's from as well. And um, what they say is uh, it emphasizes the blending of different elements that make up a liqueur in a similar way to the different parts of a work of music. Um, they claim that the Andante from Mozart's String Quartet Number no. 2 in D major is played into each batch approximately 380 <laughs> times during a 24-hour period as part of the manufacturing process, which they describe <laughs> as sound milling. Um, in addition... Sure. Ultrasound is used in order to pulverize the cocoa and achieve a smoother consistency in the finished product. So that's like their conching. They use they use ultrasound to conch it essentially. Um, 
the the first thing I kind of hope is that it's played in a sort of self-contained way where only the chocolate has to listen to it. Can you imagine being like that worker in the plant who oh, has to listen torture. to Mozart's Andante 380 times a day? Um, but you know what? They they are not alone. Um, other companies claim playing Mozart makes their products better. Everything from banana producers who play uh, Mozart to their bananas to sake as well. Even sake producers are playing Mozart. It's kind of like the whole making your baby smarter, you know, like play your baby Mozart and it will be better. Everyone thinks play Mozart to anything, even objects, it'll make them better. <laughs> I have, I'm sure I've read a long time ago about playing classical music to plants makes them happier and grow more. And Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, uh, it's an idea that, that will not disappear. Um, have you ever been to Salzburg, by the way? I have, actually. Mm. I have. So it is um, kind of like ago. a... It's kind, it is kind of, isn't it, like a Mozart theme park chocolate box type of place? <laughs> yeah. No, I Every... liked it. I, I wasn't there for long. Um, I'd been skiing all day and I was very tired. And we called in there for dinner. Mm -hmm. It was a very, very pretty place. It is, it is very pretty, but yeah, it's definitely, everything sort of has a, has a claim to Mozart in some way. Um, mm -hmm. So, in in, <laughs> in the same way that you did some hot chocolate facts from the 1970s, I thought I would end with some Mozart facts. <laughs> yes! Mozart wrote his first violin and piano piece aged five, and he wrote his first opera aged 12. God. He spoke 15 languages... Um, and despite being that prolific, he didn't spend his whole day composing, rather he did a bit of writing in the morning, a bit in the afternoon, and a bit, of a bit at night, but he spent most of his time socialising, shopping, and lunching. Oh, what was, a queen. He was rather <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> um, he composed 600 works in the three and a half decades of his life. So even though he was absolutely devoted to pleasure and hedonism and just kind of worked a little bit at a time, he output so much. Um, I mean, it's people like Mozart that make me feel crap as a person. <laughs> <laughs> really, just Mozart. So instead of the usual, uh, show me the way to go home, shall we play ourselves out with a bit of Mozart's Andante for a change? Yes. And I'm going to put more cream in my mouth. Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, on that note, uh, our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to melt in your mouth. Cheers, everybody. This is Radio 3. <laughs> That's so wet. <laughs> And now, Night Tracks. <laughs> 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 <laughs>